Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. It's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff. Are you ready to rumble our way into an all-new season of Wrestling with Freddie? You better believe I have. I've been practicing my body slams, and I'm jacked. All right, don't go injuring yourself now. We'll be highlighting the best stories and matches of the week in wrestling from AEW, WWE, and have one-on-one talks with the best talents in the world of pro wrestling. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. They are Sports Illustrated. It's amazing. This incredible body of work. I really appreciate the integrity. Everything you do is well done. You guys do a great job. We love it. What can we say? He's Chris Mannix. He's employed by Sports Illustrated. The announcer's got it in for me. There you go. This is the Crossover NBA Podcast. You have a problem with it? Build a team that can beat them. Hosted by the one and only. Oh, thank God. Thank God. Chris Mannix. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Crossover NBA Podcast. On this episode, we are going to take a deep dive into free agency. From Kawhi Leonard's upcoming decision to Kevin Durant, what he's going to do next. Kyrie Irving, what happens between him and and the two New York teams, all that and more with Wes Wilcox, the former general manager of the Atlanta Hawks. He's going to take us through all the big names, some of the smaller ones. We'll do that with Wes. A little bit later on, Jeremy Wu, SI.com's NBA draft analyst. We recap what we saw last Thursday night from some of the bigger decisions, like Atlanta's move to jump up to draft DeAndre Hunter, the Pelicans, how their draft night shook out, some of the undrafted free agents that are out there that could make an impact. Jeremy Wu is in studio for all of that. Quick housekeeping note, if you like this podcast, very easy way you can support it. Head over to Apple Podcasts, post a comment, leave a rating. It's simple, it's easy, it's free. It's the best way to make sure that we keep doing this podcast week after week. That's it. All right, on to my conversation with Wes Wilcox. All right, joining me now on the podcast, he is the former general manager of the Atlanta Hawks. You can see him in the media now out there on NBA TV, amongst other places. He is Wes Wilcox joining me now on the pod. What's up, Wes? What's up, Chris? How you doing? I'm good, man. Just gearing up for what should be an interesting next few weeks in free agency. A lot of teams out there with cap room. A lot of teams looking to spend. You know, just just my general sense from talking to to different executives around the league is that this has a very summer of 2016 feel to it, where you could have about a third of the league with as much as 19, 20 million dollars in cap space, and a lot of teams looking to spend. We could see, in addition to the top tier free agents get their money, you could see some of the second and third tier guys get paid. We might see Alan Crab like contracts. We might see Jan Mahimi type contracts, some head scratchers when you see how much money gets uh, doled out there. What's your early sense on what free agency could look like? Yeah, this free agency period is certainly going to be the most active since 2016. It probably won't be as crazy as 2016 because you had the $70 million cap that jumped to $94 million with the new national TV money, and you had 26 to 28 teams or so with max cap room. Um, and you didn't quite have the depth at the top of the free agent class like you have now. Um, but without question, you're going to see you know, teams spend a, 
a lot of money, and a number of teams spend it very quickly um, as they try you know, to beat others in the market, especially those teams up top who, who are going to get pressure on their kind of plan B free agents because um, they're going to have to wait on the plan A guys to make decisions, and that's where there'll be opportunity um, for some of these, you know, second tier, which are starter, maybe, you know, starter plus maybe all-star level guys, but not quite that clear-cut first tier. And that's where we're going to see probably the, the most aggressive deals get done. All right, let, let's talk about the, the plan A guys, specifically the top of that, that heap. Kawhi Leonard uh, is going to be an unrestricted free agent come June 30th. It, it seems like it's a two-team race between Toronto and the Clippers, though, I'm sure the Knicks will try to get in there. The Nets, maybe Dallas tries to get in there. But Kawhi's fascinating to me, Wes, because he's the kind of guy that could reshape the landscape of the NBA almost singularly. Like, he goes from... He stays in Toronto, for example. Uh, All of a sudden, the Raptors look like the team to beat next year. He goes to the Clippers, and with that roster the Clippers currently have, if they're able to bring all those guys back and add Kawhi to the mix you can make a pretty strong argument that they are the team to beat next year. Meanwhile, if Kawhi leaves, Toronto could decide to strip that team down for parts and rebuild around Pascal Siakam and Fred Van Vliet and a handful of others there. What do you think about the not just Kawhi's decision, but the ripple effects of Kawhi's decision the next couple of weeks? Yeah, there's no question you can make an argument that both teams, whoever lands Kawhi, would be, you know, a favorite or certainly one of the favorites, um, be, you know, part, partially because what has happened with the injury, the injuries to, to the Warriors and the, you know, the uncertainty with the Warriors and Kevin Durant even prior to the injuries. Um, so both teams are, are fascinating, but the thing I love about both of these teams is when you add Kawhi to the Clippers, they have an additional you know, $14 million, all the way up to, to, to really almost, you know, $46 million in more room, depending upon how they want to handle the back end of, of their room scenarios. Um, and so, so they have an opportunity to, to improve beyond just Kawhi and then Toronto, You know, they certainly have a great team with a great deal of depth. You know, their next question after, you know, keeping Kawhi on their roster is how do they really handle Danny Green and most likely Mark Gasol, of course, ups into that contract. But what makes both of these scenarios just fascinating to look at is both teams, the Clippers and Toronto, if they don't end up with Kawhi, both have great futures. Toronto would just, you know, kind of recircle the wagon around Fred VanVleet Pascal Siakam, Ananobi, you know, they may have to consider vet trades if they didn't have Kawhi. And then when you look at their future cap planning, you know, in 2020, they only have, you know, Norman Powell at 10.8, OG's $3.8 million team option, Van Vliet's an unrestricted free agent with a $17 million cap hold, Siakam has a $7 million cap hold. 2021, they only have Powell on the books at 11.6. So they probably refocused a free agency in 2020 and 2021, where the 2021 class, is free agency class, that is, is certainly deeper than the 2020 class. And the Clippers can do much the same. You know, they, they have all these picks that they've, been acquired, that they've acquired through their very smart trades. They've done a great job of drafting. They've signed value contracts. You know, the Clippers probably try to sign value in free agency if they don't sign Kawhi. They may consider trades into their room. Um, but they, too, can be a, a, a multiple, a huge amount of room team in 2020 or 2021 as they try to reposition, you know, the franchise if they don't successfully land Kawhi or another A-list free agent this summer. Yeah. When you talk to different people around the league, do you get the sense that that people are kind of rooting for Toronto or do they not care what happens to Kawhi? Because I would think that, I mean, at a personal level, I would love if the, the roll of the dice that the Raptors made was rewarded. Like, they went out there and they... They risked the future of their franchise, at least their ability to win in the short term, to go get Kawhi Leonard, add him to that mix, and it paid off. And now is where they, they have to kind of see, see what happens. But what's the general sense around the league about what, what, what kind of they, they hope Kawhi Leonard does? <laughs> uh, 
I think the hope is largely self self-interest. I think the West hopes that he stays in the East, <laughs> and the East hopes that he goes West. So, so the, I, I truly believe that's what that's what you know the the competitive nature of the teams hopes that he just leaves the conference to, to create a greater opportunity within the individual conference. But yes, there, there, there is also, I, I believe, a hope that maybe secondarily to, to, to you know, the bet paying off, the gamble paying off. You know, there's, though there's been a lot talked about, you know, Toronto had just, you know, kind of peaked. Their, their team had, had kind of plateaued as the best they could be, and they needed a shakeup. And, and this trade created really more variance, certainly more upside that resulted, you know, in a championship. There was also more downside, as you talked about, because they got one fewer year on the deal, and if Kawhi leaves, they may be forced to, to kind of invest in their future and take a longer view. Um, but at the end of the day, I just believe the competitive nature of these teams, the, you know, they, teams just want Kawhi Leonard out of their conference so there can be a greater opportunity, you know, to, to emerge to the finals. And there's there's an upside, right, to Kawhi signing kind of a short-term contract if he came back to the Raptors. I mean, he'd get to, what, is a couple of years away from, from 10 years of service. And when you get to that point, he could hit free agency, what, right around 30, right? And, and get himself an even bigger contract where he'd still be in the market for either a five-year max with the Raptors or a four-year max somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, we've certainly seen this with a number of players. They, they've played out the short-term contracts to get to the 10 years of service max um, and then lock in, you know, your, your largest deal then. Um, but if, if you're doing that, you probably want full bird rights to be able to get the five years at that point, and that requires either, you know, staying in Toronto or, or leaving now, getting to a new team and playing it out so you can get, you know, you can get those full bird rights to get that five-year deal. Yeah, that'll be interesting to watch what kind of deal. If Kawhi decides to go back, will he take a long-term deal or will he take the short-term uh, with the out? All right, let's look at Kevin Durant for a second here now. Most likely, Kevin Durant is not going to play basketball next year. I mean, even if it's on the short end of the recovery, West, I, I can't imagine whether it's Golden State or somebody else, a team bringing him back right when the playoffs are about to start for that type of run. That just... That just doesn't track with me logically. But as he's sort of like weighing his options out there, um, Golden State, look, they've said all along that money would not be an obstacle in their re-signing Kevin Durant. Do you get the sense that there will still be a five-year offer from Golden State on the table come July 1st? Yeah, w- without question, I believe that's, that's what the Warriors would do. Uh, I believe it's the right thing for Kevin um, and, and what he gave to the franchise, and certainly when you, when you consider the injury. Um, and, you know, one, one thing about we've seen with the Warriors franchise is they've been willing to spend. Obviously, they're, con- they're winning championships, and you have to do that. But we're also reaching unprecedented levels of spending. Um, and, it, and, you know, it's, they've won, but, but they're spending, and they've become one of the greatest, you know, dynasties we've seen, even though they've lost a couple of these championships um, but I don't think money will will drive this decision in any way for the Warriors, and without question, I would believe the Warriors will will you know make the full five year offer to Kevin. So so put yourself then in the shoes of of the Knicks or the Nets or even the Mavericks if they make a run at Durant. Would you, as a GM, would you hesitate about giving Kevin Durant the full four year max, knowing you're probably going to get at best three years out of him? Yeah, you're, what, what you probably do is you're probably just a bit more cautious. The injury was on, you know, looking back at you know, June 10th, and that doesn't give you a ton of time, but it gives you enough time to get the research locked in on, on what you should expect for the, for the Achilles. Um, and so you're certainly going to dig into that, talk to you know as many medical professionals and experts as you can but at the end of the day this is the risk you have to take um and ultimately if if kevin says that that he would be willing to join your franchise i don't i don't see any gm turning down this this opportunity though it you know it ultimately is unknown how he will 
return and the level of player he'll be. But but this is just one of those deals that in order to build a great team, you got to take risk in the NBA, and and that's just what you got to do. There are too many injuries that 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 are career killers at this point. I mean, two decades, three decades ago, the ACL tear used to be terrifying to teams. Now it's just kind of become common where you come back and are even stronger in the aftermath. The, even the foot injury, those were pretty scary, you know, 10 years ago. But now it, it seems like they've been able to deal with, with those types of problems. But when you look at, at an Achilles injury, as a GM, like how nerve-wracking does that type of injury uh, make you when you're trying to evaluate the future of a player after that injury? It, it's certainly, if not the most, one of the most concerning and this is one of the interesting, you know, challenges to being a general manager. You have to kind of partially become a medical expert without, you know, commonly a medical background. Because what you'll typically find is doctors will lay out a range of outcomes, and doctors know that they're not able to tell you how it's going to go. And so ultimately, you know, and this happens in the draft all the time. You know, in the draft we typically have, you know, some version of a, of a grading scale for medical. You know, let's just say it was one being perfect health and five being a do not draft because of medical. And so you end up with, you know, a range really between two, three, and four. Um, and there's ranges, you know, oftentimes within each of those, you know, kind of ranges. But what happens is if there's a really good player at the top of the draft or near the top of the draft that has some medical stuff, Instead of getting a five, which would be a do not draft, you get like a four R, like a, uh, we're concerned, but we're putting him right above the level to draft him. Because what we found is historically doctors, you know, they, they don't want to be the ones to make these decisions because they largely know that they, they, they don't know how a player is going to be able to, to recover. And so my guess is you're going to get a similar, you know, you're going to get a similar scenario here um, especially because you're not going to get the chance to evaluate Kevin before making the offer and then once you make the offer that that offer is going to be binding because you know under no circumstance could I imagine there being any sort of medical exclusion language in this type of situation so you're going to be dealing with the medicals after the fact. That's why you're going to have to get comfortable going into it, and that's why your doctors are largely going to lie, at, you know, just outline or you know lay out a range of outcomes. And you know, we know that how a player lives in condition impacts the length of their career. If they live in condition, they play longer. We know skill ages gracefully, and and we know you know a medical history you know, gives you some indication of length of career. And so, you know, certainly the skill and, and the professionalism of KD gives you confidence that he's going to be okay, and now it's just the que this question of medical, which you're not going to have great clarity on. And so, it, yes, are, are you concerned about it? Will you do the work? But at the end of the day, this is very likely a risk that multiple teams are going to be okay taking. Yeah, I agree with you there. Let me ask you about the Warriors, though, from – from where they sit now, I mean, they put Kevin Durant back out there on the floor uh, with that calf injury, and this happened. Now, I don't clearly didn't think that was going to happen or believe that was going to happen, but the reality is that it did. And, and we've seen Wes over the last couple of decades just just how much the a team's medical staff and what they're able to do resonates with players. Whether it was the Phoenix Suns and what they were able to do for a number of years with that staff, we just saw David Griffin hire away Aaron Nelson from that Phoenix staff to, to, to put on his own uh, with the Pelicans. E even in Toronto, uh, their medical staff was has been lauded for what they've done with Kawhi Leonard, and the Raptors are hoping that that staff will have an impact on Kawhi when he enters free agency. Do, do the Warriors, does their reputation amongst players, does it take a hit as a result of this? I mean, obviously they didn't want this to happen, but because it did, does it hurt them when, when players look at them as, and they're evaluating the process? I, I do not believe that it will help. That that will hurt the Warriors because with with without knowing how specifically the Warriors went about this process, just knowing the people involved in Golden State and knowing how we typically go about these types of decisions and the magnitude of these, these decisions, 
they, you know, th- this is like, unfortunately, it comes across as just talking points, but it's the truth. These are, the, these are incredibly highly collaborative between the, Kevin, the player himself, Kevin Durant, his, his representative or manager, Rich Kleinman. You know, Kevin's going to have his own doctors. The Warriors, of course, are going to have their own doctors. You're probably going to consult a third party collectively on your own as a group. Um, and ultimately, this decision is going gonna, is gonna to rest with, with everyone involved and come down to, to Kevin understanding the, you know, the, the, the likelihood of potential injuries or his current you know, playing ability to perform and, and make the decision because the player always makes the final decision. And I just do not believe, but, but they make that decision with incredible amounts of consultation from medical professionals. And I believe in no way did the Golden State Warriors put pressure on Kevin to return to play. The only way in which I would believe otherwise is if Kevin came out and said so himself, which we haven't yet heard, or at least I haven't seen or read, and I just don't believe that the Warriors would ever do that knowing the people making, you know, leading that organization. Yeah, I agree. And my only critique of what Golden State did would be if this were normal circumstances – Kevin Durant would have had a week or two weeks of practice before he got back out there on the floor. And the reality is he had like two quasi practices and, you know, one game of like three on three or whatever he was doing a couple of days before he came out on the floor. It just, you know, from what I hear from, from different medical professionals from different teams is that, you know, when you put, there needs to be kind of a ramp up period before you get to uh, putting a guy out there on the floor, especially when you're putting him out there on the floor in the most high-pressure, intense situation there could possibly be. So I guess, I guess the lack of practice time is the only thing that that sticks with me. That, did that resonate with you at all? Like that, that maybe Durant needed another week or two of practice. I know you couldn't get it, but uh, it, it would, should that have been considered at that point? Every scenario, every situation like this has a return to play protocol, and there's going to be check mark, you know, check marks along the way in order. To, to, to just assume the next level of rehab. And without question, would you want to see a player in a full game environment, you know, prior to getting him back into the fold? Um, but I, I, I just can't imagine that, that, that there wasn't a great deal of work behind the scenes on, you know, on the treadmill, full exertion, you know, sprinting on the court. I, 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 just, I just can't imagine a scenario where a, an incredibly detailed return-to-play protocol was not followed, and therefore I just believe ultimately that the Warriors, the doctors, Kevin and his business manager, Rich Kleinman, that they were prepared to play. And, um, you know, again, the only way I think that I would be – I could wrap my head around that that didn't happen as if Kevin himself came out and said otherwise, um, because I just don't think that, that, that the Warriors organization would do anything to any of their players to put them in a position to potentially you know, be re-injured or, or, or be you know, not fully cared for during the rehabilitation process. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. <laughs> Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Attention all wrestling aficionados. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. This is Freddie Prince Jr., and I am beyond thrilled to announce that our wrestling extravaganza is back, and joining me once again is the one and only Jeff Dye. 
Get ready as we highlight the most jaw-dropping matches, dissect the fiercest feuds, and uncover the latest twists and turns in the world of pro wrestling. We're dusting off our legendary side quests and unleashing a barrage of brand new segments that will keep you guys on the edge of your seat like our talks on unsanctioned Thursdays. Freddie, you know we gotta give the people what they want. This season, we have an all-star lineup of special guests who are gonna be gracing our podcast, bringing with them their own unique insights, experiences, and all of that in the world of pro wrestling and beyond. Whether you're a seasoned wrestling veteran or a fresh-faced newcomer, we promise an experience like no other. So buckle up, wrestling fans. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape. You can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game-changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So, listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Yeah, I agree with that. Just, uh... Just tough luck all the way around for everybody involved in that situation. All right, let's talk about about Kyrie Irving, who it seems like is done in Boston. Uh, the Celtics are certainly acting like uh, Kyrie is gone, and Kyrie, uh, even though I believe he's over in Japan right now doing something, is it seems like he's earmarked for one of the uh, New York teams. There was a report in the New York Post recently, Wes, and I've heard similar things, that the Nets were getting a little bit anxious about the possibility of just adding Kyrie Irving to that team. Their goal all along has been to get Kyrie along with Kevin Durant. We've heard DeAndre Jordan thrown to that mix because of his relationship with Kevin Durant. But the Nets might be having a little bit of anxiety if it just turns out to be Kyrie Irving because nobody there really believes that Kyrie Irving and D'Angelo Russell can play together. Uh, if you were the Nets, I mean, how would you feel about just adding Kyrie Irving to that team. Well, first of all, to your first first point about nervousness or anxiety, I think all of these teams right now have a high level of, of anxiety based upon how free agency is going to go. That for the Clippers, for the Lakers, for Toronto, even though the Raptors are playing with a little bit of house money, um, and certainly the Nets. And secondly, I don't believe that the the Nets organization, Sean Marks and Kenny Atkinson are going to be communicating this concern to anyone externally if they're having it. I think this is a misinformation campaign that you see during this time of year, and this is most likely other teams or other people trying to get this out there to hurt the chances of the Nets signing Kyrie Irving. By no way, in in no way, do I think that this is coming from the key decision-makers of Brooklyn. I just don't buy it. I don't believe it. Those people are too buttoned up. They're too good to have this out there. So that, that's first. Secondly, I, I think this is probably about, you know, what are they able to do after they have a point guard? So with Russell, or D'Angelo Russell, they have about $48.5 million of room. With out D'Angelo, they have about $68.6 million in room. Once you sign Kyrie, you have about 36.8, you know, almost enough. You can easily get there for Kevin Durant's 
you know, 10 plus years of service max around $38 million. And so that's what I think this, if there is any kind of anxiety or nervousness, I think it's about the next piece. I don't think it's about whether or not, you know, they're going to sign Kyrie Irving, though it is a fair point, And we all know that there's, you know, some, it was not perfect in Boston this year. And there's questions as to, you know, if Kyrie is your best player, how good can you really be? He's a great player, but the question is, is he good enough to lead you alone as your best player to championship contention? And just he hasn't done that yet, and so that's a fair question. I would say to not perfect in Boston, Wes, is like saying the Hindenburg was a bumpy ride. I would go with, go with that, that, co- that comparison. I mean... I, I guess the the greater question is though, like if it comes down to that decision between you get Kyrie and you know you, you strike out with with Kevin Durant, he decides he wants to play with the Knicks instead. Is it worth it to the Nets? I mean, de- did D'Angelo Russell show you enough to make you believe that building around him with that young group is better than bringing Kyrie in and maybe hoping that you can either trade for? another piece or acquire one in the next couple of years. I mean, how tough a call do you think that would be if it does come down to that decision? Oh, it's a difficult decision. Um, you know, they saw, I don't, I don't know what it exactly would be, but, you know, three, probably three great months of D'Angelo um, and just a great deal of improvement. Um, and so you're probably making, like, the max decision based upon his developmental time in Brooklyn, and then the explosion to all-star status. Whereas with Kyrie, you know, you're, evalu- you're evaluating multiple years. And so when, when you're looking at the two players, you probably have just, frankly, more confidence that Kyrie is going to be able to sustain his level of play because um, he's done it for longer historically. And with Russell, you've got to make a decision on a shorter amount of time. And so uh, if, if you had to pick between the two players, I would just pick the more certain Kyrie and because you just don't know exactly long-term what you're going to have with D'Angelo, though D'Angelo has certainly proven that he's just a terrific offensive player. You just, you just haven't seen it as much as consistently. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. I think the Kyrie knee stuff, I think, has to be factored in as well. He was healthy last season, but, I mean, he's had a few knee problems over the last couple of years. But let me ask you, though, about... The, the reputation and the perception of Kyrie Irving now after the Boston experience, if you couple it with what happened in Cleveland where he was part of a winning situation and he effectively forced his way out of there. He goes to Boston and he's kind of being been given everything he asked for. He was given a, a stable franchise with you know at least finals-level talent uh, around him, uh, a coach that was considered among the best, is considered among the best in the NBA, and it just didn't work out there. I mean, is there, has the, has the perception of the reputation of Kyrie Irving been changed as a result of what's happened over the last, you know, two or three years? You know, I don't, I don't know if it's, if it's changed or not. Certainly, you know, there's, there seems to be a level of unhappiness with Kyrie that, you know, I think we all just hope that he's able to find that happiness, um, whatever that is, and, and, and he's still a young player trying to figure out how to lead. Um, and so I, th- I think that's the perception, is h- how can we help him find happiness um, and, and how can we help him be a better leader, knowing that, yeah, that there was, you know, it's unusual to leave or want to leave a team that's, you know, in Cleveland a championship contender and, um, Boston's, you know, I, I don't know that we can we can put all of the 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 Boston struggles this year on Kyrie. You know, they had the Gordon Hayward, you know, reintroduction, which we know was a challenge um, a couple years ago, 2017-18. They go, of course, to the Eastern Conference Finals, Game Seven, and make it very difficult on Cleveland, and sometimes. You know, having having too much and too many players is, and not a great pecking order is a challenge. Um, and so, I, I, there's without question, you know, Kyrie is is involved in all of this. Um, but I also know that sometimes these things are are unfairly, you know, put on one player when oftentimes it's it's a 
a number of variables that that dictate you know these these teams struggling when and really when expectations are not met there's consequence and and that's always what happens and if for somehow Boston found a way to get it together um, and win, then you know I, I I don't think we'd be dealing with the same situation. Even though Cleveland was winning and Kyrie wanted wanted to leave. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, look, Boston's problems went well beyond just Kyrie Irving. There's no doubt about that. Um, I, I do think his leadership and his ability to be, as you pointed out, the number one guy is in question. Uh, but you know, their problems at Boston they ran deep. I mean, the young guys, with or without Kyrie, there. If it was a different player, they were not willing to accept lesser roles, and that was problematic in the locker room all throughout. So it definitely went beyond Kyrie. Let, let me finish, though, with the Celtics and you know where Boston goes from here because this time last year, you know, we were looking at them as one of the top two or three teams in the NBA because of what they were getting back after last season's conference finals run. Now, I don't know where they go. I mean, they trade away Aaron Baines, who had a pretty good contract, uh, to clear some cap space. That gives me the sense, West, that they're targeting somebody, either via free agency or in a trade. But they're now looking at a team. They had four new draft picks to add to that mix, including two first-rounders. Uh, they're building now around Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. I mean, where does Boston go from here now that it looks like uh, almost a sure thing they lose both Kyrie Irving and Al Horford? Well, I think Boston has, has great optionality. Um, and... You know, you just mentioned it. They have Tatum, who could be an MVP candidate down the road. He is that, I believe, he is that level of of player down the road. Um, and Jalen Brown, in his own right, is has all star potential. Um, and then, you know, they still have, of course, Rozier and Marcus Smart, who are both twenty five years old. And so, the future of I, the future of the Celtics. Is still has to be bright. Yes, there's without question they underperformed their expectations this past season, um, and so again, it, it's it's one of these scenarios where yeah, there's consequence to, to to not kind of meeting expectation, but the 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 consequence for them is is not nearly as severe because they have optionality, and and you know we can't forget that the Memphis pick that they hold in the future that pick just got better most likely with the decisions that memphis has made to kind of invest in their future you know you talk about the cap room i I, they have about 34 million without terry rozier 25 with rozier yeah they're likely going to add to their team in in free agency or in trade um and so long term the, the celtics i love their future it's just you know, it the the off season has just started, and I think it's a little it's a little premature to say that that this this has been uh, you know anything other than wait and see for the Celtics because uh, I just have too much confidence in the team that they've built and the flexibility they have and the young players they have on their roster. They do have a lot of flexibility and and still have those assets, but. Do you feel like they overplayed their hand at all, Wes? You know, they didn't make a run at Kawhi when they probably could have landed him if if they were willing to put Jalen Brown in a deal. That was my read of it all along. Um, they, they don't go all in for Anthony Davis, which I agree with. I mean, given their circumstance, uh, I would have done it either. But have they held on to these assets too long? Because at some point, these guys are going to get paid. I mean, Rozier's up for a contract, uh, new contract this year. Jalen Brown is going to be next. After that, Jason Tatum. I mean, have they missed their window to capitalize on all these assets? Yeah, now, this is a fair question. You know, if they would, if the Celtics would have rolled the dice and made a trade for Kawhi, if they would have been able to acquire Kawhi, which we don't know what, what San Antonio would have chosen, of course, but, but if they could have, that, that's a fair question because, you know, cause of the success, and largely because of the success we've seen now with Toronto. Um, however, if you're going back to having to make those decisions, if you're Danny Ainge and Austin Ainge and Mike Zarin, and you're trying to work through this, and you're, and you're getting zero confidence from those around Kawhi that he would stay long-term, and you're being told very clearly that Anthony Davis doesn't want to stay long-term, then 
I think they made the right decision to protect the organization and say, no, we're going to take a longer view, even though it may be some short-term pain. If they make more good decisions down the road, who's to say they couldn't be, you know, a, a championship contender two, three, four years from now as, as Tatum and Brown emerge and develop into even better players than they currently are? My thanks to Wes Wilcox, and now my conversation with Jeremy Wu. All right, so we all need someone to talk to, a person who can support us through rough patches or even the everyday ups and downs in life. That's where Talkspace comes in. Talkspace Online Therapy makes taking care of your mental health more affordable and convenient than ever before. Simply provide your preference for therapy, and Talkspace will match with one of 4,000-plus therapists the very same day. Send your therapist unlimited text, audio, picture, or video messages from anywhere at any time. No matter what you're going through, you are not alone. Join more than 1 million who feel happier with Talkspace. Finding the right therapist doesn't need to be stressful. The Talkspace matching process takes your The Talkspace matching process takes your unique preferences into account to find you someone whose style and expertise matches your needs. And if you want to switch therapists, you can do so at any time at no extra cost. It's convenient and it's easy to use. You no longer have to wait for your next appointment to talk about what's on your mind. With Talkspace, you can send unlimited messages to your dedicated therapist from the privacy of your device from anywhere at any time of day. If you're having a tough time, you can always schedule a live video session with your therapist for extra support. One month of therapy on the Talkspace platform costs about the same amount as a single face-to-face session. Best of all, you never have to wait a week to share what's on your mind. Talkspace has more than 4,000 licensed therapists who are experienced in addressing the challenges we all face. To match with your perfect therapist for a fraction of the price of traditional therapy, go to Talkspace.com. Make sure to use the code TALK to get your first week for free and show your support for the show. That's TALK and Talkspace.com. All right, joining me now on the podcast, fresh off the NBA draft, and I'm sure very excited to be here to talk more about the NBA draft. <laughs> Jeremy Wu, SI.com's front office insider, NBA draft analyst. What's up, Jeremy? What's up, man? Uh, just, uh, you know, I think just basking in the uh, afterglow of the draft still. It's been almost a week. Uh, but uh, <laughs> nice to see a little. Is that I took, I took a short break. I took a short break this draft? weekend. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it, it was an interesting night, though, man. And, you know, going into it, we expected to see a flurry of deals. I don't know, though, if I expected to see as many teams try to either move down or move out of the first round, the second round. It, it was perceived, Jeremy, as being kind of a weak draft. And, and I don't always know what to believe when it comes to that. I mean, how do we know the strength of the draft until four or five years down the line? But watching the number of teams kind of maneuver, a lot of them trying to push their draft picks either either out of that, that draft or into the next year's draft, it really showed me that there really was kind of a sense that this was not a, a great draft. What, what was your takeaway from the activity that we saw on draft night? Yeah. It was sort of a ripple effect in some ways. I mean, we kind of knew New Orleans was going to come off a four and, and move down. And then, you know, Minnesota actually surprised me a little bit by moving up. But, like, you know, beyond those teams sort of at the top, I think you're right. There was a lot of, uh, you know, trying to, you know, determine what the best value was, whether it was deferring, uh, you know, to next year or or what. I mean, I, I, I think at the end of the day, you know, team, teams tend to just – you know, if you can get the guy you want, you get the guy you want. If you, you know, there are teams that had to sort of sit in their pick and live with it. And I, I think one, one GM I talked to sort of going into the week put it pretty well. He said it, it, it was a hard draft to sort of move up and down uh, because, you know, teams are just so all over the board in some of these guys that, you know, maybe you move back five spots and your guy's gone. Uh, maybe you move back 10 and he's still there, right? But it's, it's hard to guess that. And I think that, uh, you know, in the first round, middle of the first round, uh, I think you could see that it's, uh, it was a little bit harder to sort of move back. Um, just, you know, to some extent, you get the guy you want. It's better to just take him in a draft like this. Yeah, and that's what we saw with, with Atlanta, at least. I mean, the Hawks, second year in a row, they've decided that they had a guy in their mind and, 
and they were going to go and, and, and make sure they got that deal. Last year they moved down to get or to keep the Trey Young pick and get that extra first-round pick because they like Young the most. This year they move up, and they get up and draft DeAndre Hunter, and, and it seemed like he was their guy all along, uh, that they want to be the kind of backcourt mate of Trey Young moving forward. What did you make of the Hawks' moves uh, on draft night, giving up 8-17 and 17 to get uh, up to 4 to get DeAndre Hunter? Yeah, Atlanta's philosophy, I think it's become pretty clear over the last couple of years. You know, what they want to do is, you know, they want to just rack up as many of these assets as they can. Uh, and for them, it's about, you know, being able to strike and get the guy they want when they can. And I think that's what you saw. You know, Hunter is a guy who, you know, for me, wouldn't be a top five pick uh, in most drafts, probably would be sort of further down in the lottery. But for Atlanta, you know, you take into account the fit, uh, you take into account, you know, they had extra picks, so they didn't necessarily need to roster. Uh, all these guys, uh, you know, for them to be able to come up and get Hunter and then, you know, do that, keep 10, take Cam Reddish at 10, which I think was part of their plan all along, uh, sort of from what I understand, you know, when they were having these conversations, they were hoping to keep one of 8 or 10, ideally, right? And I think that's probably why you saw them giving extra stuff up to the Pelicans. Uh, But, you know, they were able to get Reddish at 10. They have two forwards now who fit in with what they have, right? I mean, they've got Trey Young, uh, they've got Kevin Herter, who was a nice surprise last year. Uh, they have John Collins, and now you know you throw in Hunter, a uh, versatile defender. You throw in Reddish, who's a guy who you know probably hasn't played his best basketball yet. I mean, I think there's a reason to be excited, uh, and I think you know the connective threat is going to be Trey Young here. You know, they're giving him tools to work with. They're giving him guys who are athletic, who can shoot, who can run. Uh, you can kind of see the vision for that team shaping up. Yeah, and on the flip side, we knew going in that. That New Orleans was looking to to trade out of that number four spot. Well, I don't. I'm not really sure what kind of value they got for that pick, though, because I mean, look at number eight. I mean, Jackson Hayes. I, I don't know how he fits alongside a Zion Williamson. I mean, he's not a floor spacer. He's a he's a defensive minded guy, kind of maybe a Nerlens Noel type. If I'm looking for any kind of comparison, and then they get uh, Nikhil Alexander Walker, who's a nice player there at number 17. Uh, I, I, I guess. Well, what do you think of the return that the Pelicans got? Could they have gotten more for that number four overall pick? Yeah, no, I, I like what they did. Um, as far as more, it's hard to say. Um, and I, I think ultimately, you know, in this draft, I don't think the, the tricky part about the fourth spot is that basically it was the first pick at the top of a tier of you know, five or six or seven players who could all be, you know, the best guy in that group. So really, you know, if you don't have a guy you love there, you know, it's hard to say that, you know, we love having this pick. I think that's probably the position they were in. And I think Atlanta, you know, had the guy they love and they knew they had to get in front of Cleveland uh, to get Hunter. You know, Cleveland was picking five. So, you know, I think overall it was a pretty good return considering that, you know, it was really, I think Atlanta and Minnesota were probably the only teams that ended up getting serious. And um, I mean, look, my philosophy here is if you're going to come down off four and you're going down to eight, at least take the guy with you know the biggest upside possible to justify going down four spots. I mean, Jackson Hayes could be one of the five best players in this draft. Uh, so I, I didn't mind it. I mean, I, I understand some of the fit questions, but at the same time, uh, he's such a, he's so early in his development. Like He was a late bloomer, you know, just came out of nowhere at Texas. No one really expected him to be in this draft, and then all of a sudden he's the best player on their team. I mean... Um, you know, I mean, maybe maybe there is more that he can do that we haven't seen. I think it's probably fair to, to guess that, right? I, I don't know if he can shoot, but just if you look at the vision for the team that they are sort of putting together, I mean, it's an athletic team. It's going to be a really good defensive team. I think, you know, Hayes probably had a case as the best, you know, defensive big in this draft. So you put him behind Zion, who covers a ton of ground, too. You can kind of see, you know, why that fits, at least in that way, right? And then Alexander Walker, I think, was fine at 17. Um and then, you know, they also picked up 35. Uh, if you look at it like that, I mean, look, they also picked up 35. They took Didi, uh, the Brazilian kid who a lot of people like, that let them come off of 39. They sent 39 to the Warriors, and they picked up two seconds. And then they also picked up the feature first from uh, from Atlanta. So, you know, I, I think it's all these, you know, little things are ideally for them are going to add up into, you know, putting, putting them in position to do the best job they can building around Zion. And I think from that perspective, I, I don't have a problem with what they did at all. Man, that that Pelicans team is going to be. They're going to play probably really fast, and they're going to commit a lot of turnovers next year. That, that's two mm-hmm. things that I'm I'm sure of with that New Orleans group. But I uh, look, they got a bunch of young guys, and now they can sort of fee- see what pieces work. And certainly, they got some trade assets to deal down the line when you factor in the young players plus the future draft considerations they have. So yeah, I guess you know David Griffin's in a pretty good spot with uh, future maneuvering with the flexibility he has there. The the team that that. I didn't really understand what they were doing. And this has been talked about a lot, so it's not exactly breaking new ground. But what Phoenix did 
with that that number six pick. I mean, trading down, they acquired Dario Saric, which he's a good player. And and when it comes to quality role players on winning teams, I think Dario Saric can be one of those guys. But they, they turn around, they draft Cam Johnson um, with that number 11 pick. I just didn't really understand. And earlier in the night, they trade TJ Warren to Indiana uh, in exchange for, well, the number 32 pick. And, and that, to me, was a little puzzling. T.J. Warren is not like, I don't think T.J. Warren puts up the type of numbers he did in Phoenix on a good team, but he's a pretty good player on a manageable contract. And all night long, all I was hearing from different teams was that Josh Jackson was available. Mm-hmm. I mean, Josh Jackson, mm-hmm. a couple years ago, was the number four overall pick. It just seems like James Jones is coming in and deciding, like, no matter what the, the pieces are on the roster outside of Devin Booker, uh, I'm, you know, I, whatever wasn't there before I got there, I'm moving off them. What did you make of what Phoenix was doing last night or uh, on draft night? Yeah, it was weird. I mean, they can't give Josh Jackson away, and they tried. I think <laughs> I heard what you heard. Like, I don't they, really, I don't really get that, Jeremy, because th- this is a guy that like he's got flaws, but he is a terrific defensive player who can guard multiple positions, runs the floor really well. Uh, I, I don't really get why they're trying to run away from him. Now yeah. I'm hearing stuff about how they may not pick up his option uh, well, next year. I mean, I'll that would be this. incredible if that was the case. I'll say this. I mean, I know the off-court stuff has been not good with him. It's been a consistent, not great. Like, you know, you can Google it. It's out there, like different things that he's been getting into. And then, you know, I know Monty Williams yeah. is coming in. You know, Monty's really big on character. I can see why that's not a fit. I, I can also see why other teams are like, well, we can probably get him for free, so we don't necessarily need to <laughs> give you anything for him right now. So... Uh, you know, I'm sure he'll get another chance or two. It doesn't seem like it's going to be in Phoenix long term. But I mean, back to the draft. I, I was I was a little, a little surprised at what they did because I, I I had on pretty good authority how much they loved Jarrett Culver, uh, you know, coming into this draft. So then now they got to take him at six. So like, then they come off of six and go down to eleven. Uh, you know, they must have really valued Sarich to do that. Um, and you know, Cam Johnson at eleven, I think you know he'll help them. It's not going to be like a, a zero pick. And I think. In this draft, at least you know that you're getting a player. Uh, but I mean, there were teams that thought Johnson might slip into the early second round. Like that, that was what I was hearing the day before the draft, and that was, you know, people were worried about Cam Johnson. He's got bad hips. Uh, he's already 23. Um, you know, the upside is not immense, but he is an elite and could be an elite spot up shooter in the NBA. So there's something. Um, but you know, to do that and then to dump Warren and must have been a salary thing. Like people are saying they are going to try to make her run at the Angelo Russell. So like that's probably what had to do with that. But you know, they were clearly doing something that it ended up looking like they were trying to play, you know, chess, not checkers. And it, I don't know exactly what they were doing, to be honest. Um, and then, you know, to give up the first to get Ty Jerome, the future first. I mean, they, I, yeah, I, I honestly still don't know what to make of it. It was definitely, if there is a team that people are still throwing out their hands about, it was Phoenix. All right. Well, all that being said, like the pieces now that Phoenix has in that group with, with Cam Johnson, you know, you got Devin Booker at eight and still the stalwarts there. I'm going to assume that Josh Jackson is still there at the start of the season, though you know they may be able to find a team after the dust settles on free agency to take on Jackson and give them some kind of value in return. Is, is that I mean, what do they look like next season with this group? I mean, is there, is there a noticeable upgrade based on what they did on draft night? Yeah, um, it's hard to say. I mean, I do think you know if they're able to find, you know, be it D'Angelo Russell, be it someone else to play with Devin Booker. You know, it's a team that could sort of take a step forward competitively. Like, you know, these are guys who should be able to get better. Um, you know, Aiton, I think, will get better in year two. Uh, Booker continues to get better. You know, Booker works. And so, you know, we've got those two guys. You know, Mikhail Bridges was all right last year. I think he probably has some more to show. Uh, they're trying to keep Kelly Oubre. I mean, it's going to be a team that's athletic. It's gonna, they're going to be very – it seems like they're going to be sort of like small ball oriented around Aiton. Like, they don't want to play, uh, you know, two bigs together, right? So – you know, they got a lot of these – they're sort of collecting these versatile forwards. You know, Johnson will space the floor. It's probably – I mean, they're probably not done. Um, I don't know if it's a playoff team. It's probably not. Um, it seems like they're trying something, though, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're sure trying something. Yeah. But they need to – they need some veterans on that team, but that's a conversation for another day. Um, let's talk about Boston for a second because the Celtics came in with three first-round picks. They wind up using two of them. Uh, th- this was kind of a puzzling draft for the Celtics. You know they were trying to make some some big moves, but the most significant roster move they made was dumping Aaron Baines into that Phoenix cap space, which I don't really understand because Baines had a pretty manageable salary at just under $6 million for next season. If you watch the Celtics play, and I watched a lot of their games, uh, 
his defensive ability was was paramount to what they did in becoming one of the best defensive teams in the league the last couple of years. But they move off him. I guess they're trying to clear some cap space for whom I'm not entirely sure. But the Celtics draft Romeo Langford. Uh, they draft Grant Williams in the first round. Uh, Langford is you know coming off a year that he he didn't shoot the ball particularly well at Indiana. Grant Williams. I guess he makes some sense in that front court. Now there's some spots open with Al Horford likely gone and Baines out the door. But what did you make of what the Celtics did on draft night? Yeah, um, you know, it seemed to me like they, you know, they weren't, they probably didn't love the spots they were in. Uh, it's funny, I mean, you know, they went from maybe they're going to trade all these picks to now they're <laughs> keeping four rookies. Um, and that's, I think that's probably, you know, with the developments with Kyrie and, Al Horford, you know, they probably knew that it might as well just keep these guys for now. Um, you know, I didn't love the Langford pick. I'm not personally a big Langford guy. I don't love the fit with with them just because he's so ball dominant. The last thing I want if I'm building around Jason Tatum is another guy who's going to stop the ball. So, you know, we'll see. You know, maybe there's something there that we haven't seen yet. I, I just didn't love that fit. Um, Langford was a guy for me who was more like a guy I, I would have taken later. Um, but then, you know, if you look at the other picks they made, uh, you know, Grant Williams is a pick I think they probably made for – you know, big time off of intangibles. Like, if you look at, you know, obviously the locker room stuff was not great in Boston this year. You know, you get Grant Williams, great. You know, on all accounts, a great individual, uh, you know, to add to the mix. You know, I think they'll be happy with that. You know, Carson Edwards is another guy who's a smart uh, guy who will fit in well with them. I mean, you know, they are just kind of like plugging holes here, it seems like. Um, I think Boston is probably going to have to take a step back. Um, but, you know, at least you can kind of see how these guys fit together. Like, I like Tremont Waters, too. I thought what they did, um, it seemed like with, with Thibel, you know, they were able to hold up the Sixers for an extra pick, and, you know, that seemed smart. So, you know, it, it wasn't like a loss for them, but certainly it's just indicative, you know, they're going to be treading water a little bit. What do you make of the – you know, Langford comes in, he had the thumb injury last year, and, and that's being used as kind of a reason why his he wasn't a great shooter. Do, do you buy that? Do you think he's an NBA shooter? Um, I mean, I'm sure it affected him, uh, but you know, I watched him a little bit in high school, and I, I never thought he was that. I was not that convinced by his jumper, just sort of mechanically at that point. Anyway, it's like yeah, I'm not a shooting coach; I don't know everything. But you know, to me, I was never coming into the season. I was worried about his his shooting, a three point shooting, and so you know, the injury is a factor, but I don't think it's a cure all. Like he's not going to magically you know rest three more months and be a 35 percent three point shooter. Like I don't expect that to happen. Uh, I'm I'm also just a little bit worried about him. Uh, just playing off the dribble, you know, he's a little bit predictable. Uh, you know, I saw Indiana three times this year, and you know, I was just never blown away by him. He's his, his on-court demeanor is a little bit like lackadaisical in some ways. It's not like he's not competitive, but he just sometimes it looks kind of like aloof out there. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that he's not going to be a good player, um, but at that point in the draft, I thought Boston could have gone different directions. Yeah, that's uh, that, that. That I mean, that pick right there. I think people look back on if it works out great. If not, uh, you know, I, I've yet to come across too many people, Jeremy, that that love the Jer- the, the the Langford pick, the Romeo mm-hmm. Langford pick. Mm-hmm. I, just very few people out there are saying that was a great find uh, for the Celtics. Um, what the the biggest faller on draft night? Uh, Bull Bull sitting in the green room doesn't get drafted until late in the second round, scooped up by Denver, which is a very Denver thing to do. Mm-hmm. Like the Nuggets, they value talent above all else. And if there's a chance to take a flyer on a guy with perceived lottery talent like Bull Bull, they're going to do it. So it didn't surprise me to see the Nuggets be the team that that took him. But how far he fell. I mean, you had said coming into draft night that his – you know where he where he might get drafted fluctuated wildly, but did you ever think it would get to that point where you're into the fifties and Bull Bull is still on the board? Yeah, you know I did think coming into the night I had a feeling like I I knew he was going to fall. I still thought someone would do it in the twenties was my guess because um, like nothing I heard about his medical was like debilitating, right? I mean it's not great, but it's not. You know I think people were kind of indifferent towards it. I think ultimately it's just like. He has so many questions in so many different areas that he was just a guy who I think was hard to tuck yourself into, which is obviously indicative of, you know, he went number 44. I mean, all these teams are passing in the second round. Like, uh, But he ended up, in, honestly, I think he ended up in a great situation. It's, pro- it's probably a blessing for him in some ways because no pressure. Uh, you know, Denver can bring him along slow. They did the same thing with Michael Porter. Uh, you know, the benefit of playing with Jokic is, you know, he makes everybody so much better. And, like, you can imagine if those two guys are playing together, I mean, they kind of cover for each other. Like, you know, Bull will help defensively a little bit, and he'll space the floor. And, 
uh, you know, maybe maybe we never get to that point. But you know, if he if he does, you know, find a way to become a contributor and he's hitting threes and blocking shots, I mean, that's an interesting piece for them. So, you know, at the end of the day, you know, things happen in the draft, and every year there's something weird that happens like this. But you know, for the player, it's just, are you in a good situation? And I think Denver is one of the better situations he could have landed in, and one that nobody would have guessed either coming in. Yeah, no pressure being in Denver with the Nuggets. He could play in the G League all year with you know for them, and and they wouldn't care all that much. He, he can sit can out all year. Put weight on him. <laughs> yeah, uh, if he needs to recover, extract that yeah. talent uh, out of him. Uh, last question for you, Jeremy. The 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 undrafted free agent market, which you know, always yields somebody, right? I mean, Fred VanVleet was the most significant example from a couple of years ago of a guy that turned into a real NBA player. I mean, where would the Raptors be? without Fred VanVleet. Give me a name or a couple of names of guys that you like that were undrafted they think could make an impact in the next couple of years. Yeah, um, I mean, Lugans Dort from Arizona State was a guy who was kind of a puzzling undrafted situation. Like, I thought he was going to at least get picked. Uh, you know, he, I think he he went to Thunder on a two-way. I mean, that's a pretty good pickup for them, like, on a budget. I think he'll he'll probably end up being, you know, there, there's some floor there. He's such a good athlete. He's, he's not a great shooter, so people, I think, were a little bit uh, concerned about that. Um, I mean, he was a good one. Uh, I mean, Zylan Cheatham uh, to the Pelicans. I mean, that was that was a good pickup for them. Uh, you know, Kai Bowman to Golden State. You know, he might actually be able to give them some some minutes next year as a backup guard if they don't keep Quinn Cook. So, you know, it was a good undrafted market. And from talking to you know some agents and players, I mean, it was hard to get a two way this year just because there were so many underclassmen who didn't get picked. And you know, I don't know what those guys' relative expectations were. Um, but it was really competitive to get you know good undrafted deals. Uh, Jalen LeCue got a you know four year guarantee from Phoenix. I mean that's not a bad situation to be in. Um, but a lot of the times second round is just you know whether or not your agent you know, did a good job and you know whether or not you want to agree to something and you know that sort of determines whether or not you get picked. So you know a lot of these guys it doesn't really matter if you go fifty or undrafted or whatever. Um, but there's there's still a lot of talent floating out there. So I think summer league, which, which is next for us. Uh, should be fun, uh, you know, just sort of seeing how these guys sort of respond to, you know, going undrafted. You know, there were guys like Nazareth and Lewis King who people thought were going to get picked and didn't, so. Does a guy like Taco Fall have any chance of making it in the NBA? I mean, I would love to see a guy with that type of size turn into a player, but watching him at the Combine, like, offensively, I don't know what he's, I don't know what he's going to be able to do out there. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I'd, like, bet on him to play more than a year or two in the NBA, but I also don't think he's like a total waste. Like, on an undrafted deal, I, I get why you would try it. I mean, look, I mean, even if he's the last guy on your bench, and like, this is what I've said before, like, imagine there's like, you know, 10 seconds left in the game, and the other team's inbounding the ball. You sub in Taco, and you have him <laughs> stand on the baseline. Like, he's, you know, seven foot six. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe there's some limited use for a guy like that that helps you win a game, right? So, I don't know. Offensively, it's just going to be tough for him just because he – Natural. I mean, he's big and slow. Just not his fault. He's just slow. He's huge. And you know, offensively, I don't know how much he can create. But you know, he does. The biggest thing from watching him in those combine games and the G League camp is just he occupies so much space and it warps the floor in a weird way. And I think if you, I mean, if you look at Boban, he's not as good as Boban, not as skilled. Um, but you know, Boban, there are games where he comes in and actually helps uh, for you know the Sixers and the Clippers last year. And so you know, maybe there's some. 10 minute a game role that taco conventionally on a creative team that he can find but more than that no but it'll be one of the interesting storylines going into the summer yeah for sure um you also by the way have your 2020 draft board up it just here we go right? 2020 <laughs> real real quick is there a zion williamson in the 2020 draft the top of the draft is there a consensus right now at who's number one um i mean the number one i think right now in most people's minds is James Wiseman from Memphis um and that's more of just like in lieu of a better option right now he is sort of the presumptive number one you know he's he's pretty talented for sure uh he has yet he's a you know classic case it's like a really skilled athletic big guy who just hasn't totally put it together and so you know sometimes guys don't learn to play hard until later you know he seems to sort of be making some strides there um so he's probably the favorite to go first next year but as far as is there like a Zion who's going to dominate college and have like a transcendent year probably not like when you work down it quickly gets dicey and you know these things change really quick every year um but you no know, there's more a better international group coming uh which is nice it kind of helps a little bit but you know it was not a great uh you know class here in, in the states in terms of you know seniors um and you know every year there's one and dones but uh, i mean we could be looking at a draft that's worse than this year's draft it's too early to say but we could be 
So interesting interesting well jeremy great work all year long great work on draft night you can read jeremy's stuff up on si.com right now his uh his 2020 big board is up as well including his reactions uh, from draft night jeremy thanks as always man for coming on the podcast appreciate it man catch you later It's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff, are you ready to rumble our way into an all-new season of Wrestling with Freddie? You better believe I have. I've been practicing my body slams, and I'm jacked. All right, don't go injuring yourself now. We'll be highlighting the best stories and matches of the week in wrestling from AEW, WWE, and have one-on-one talks with the best talents in the world of pro wrestling. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.